Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to CVC, or welcome back to CVC if you're a returning guest. If you're a guest today, we're so glad that you're with us as uh, we enter into our time of teaching and open up the Bible. You know, my earliest memory of seeing a Bible growing up was we had a green Bible in our bookcase as a kid. And we, we weren't uh, a family that worshiped Christ, and so this Bible was just one book among many books. And I remember as a kid, a few times, I would reach in there and I'd pull it out, and I'd kind of thumb through it and look at it. No pictures, nothing interesting, no interest, put it right back in there, you know? And, and didn't really think anything about that book. But when I gave my life to Christ and became a follower of Christ, I realized it was not just another book, right? It's the book. And all of a sudden, uh, it's a book that doesn't need to be in a bookcase. It's a book that needs to be on the kitchen table. It was a book that needed to be on the coffee table or next to my bedside, just within reach because I needed to get God's Word in my heart. I needed to get God's Word in my mind and in my soul. And as I started spending time with God in His Word, transformation started taking place. And all of a sudden, I, I, I felt close to God. And I could feel like I could trust God with the things I was concerned about. And I started to learn about God, things that I had never thought about before. And so uh, really transformation started happening in my life. And I was thinking, if I would have known there was this much life-changing power in this book earlier, I should would have got into it a lot sooner, right? And so uh, the, the Bible has really shaped me and shaped my life. Can you remember the first time you got your hands on a Bible? What kind of impact has it had on you? Is it just one of the books in your house somewhere with all the other books? Or is it within reach so that you can open it and grab it and get into it and get into God's Word and let God's Word get into you? And have you been experiencing the life transformation that God has waiting for us in these pages? Because so many of you are, are feeling a lot of frustration or disappointment or angst or whatever it is in your life, and yet probably what you need most is right within reach but you're just not getting in it. And so the Bible is a phenomenal book. Now, a lot of you that are Christ followers would say that you believe the Bible. You believe the Bible is the word of God. You believe it's the truth, all those kinds of things. I think the big question is why? Why do you believe the Bible? Or maybe you're here today and you're on a spiritual journey and you're not a follower of Christ yet. And as you think about the Bible and hear teachings about the Bible, maybe the questions you're asking are, why should I believe in the Bible? And so we're going to look a little bit today at why we believe in the Bible. And it's very important because it doesn't help right now that there's a growing level of biblical illiteracy in the church. Many Christians don't read or memorize, or pray through, or study the Bibles. They don't even bring them to church to open up, or fire up, and take notes, and, and really interact with God's Word. And what happens is, we become a malnourished, spiritually shallow, scripturally weak, and theologically vulnerable people when we're not in God's Word. And so we need to know the Word of God, but we also need to know why we believe the Word of God. And why we see the Bible as a reliable, true, credible, authoritative uh, book, especially one that brings life-changing power into our lives from the Lord. And so God wants us to know him. God wants us to trust him. God wants us to be transformed by him. That's why he gave us the Bible because he wants us to know him and trust him and be transformed by him. And that's what I want to share today, is that we have this faith that God's given us. We have 
the reasoning that God's given us, we have the word that God's given us, and we have evidence that God's given us to why we can believe the Bible. And we believe the Bible because of the supernatural, the historical, the archaeological, the prophetic, and the eyewitness evidence. Let me say that again because that's a phrase I encourage you to walk out the doors with today. That I believe the Bible because of the supernatural, the historical, the archaeological, the prophetic, and the eyewitness evidence. And just to help you uh, know how to do that, we're going to come up with this little acronym SHAPE. Some of you aren't acronym people. It's okay. It helps me. And so we're going to learn today about the shape of the Bible, not because that's as important as the fact that the Bible actually shapes us as we are in it. And so the first evidence we're going to look at today is the supernatural evidence. Everyone acknowledges that the Bible is a unique book. I mean, it's number one bestseller ever, you know, but it's far more than that. It's supernatural. It's from God. Its originator is divine. And so therefore, the content, what you find in the pages of the Bible, is supernatural. We have an account on creation and eternity, uh, information on how we can be forgiven of sins, how we can go to heaven, how we can stay out of hell, uh, information about how to draw close to the Lord and live in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. We see in this supernatural accounts of miracles and healings, blind people getting their sight back, crippled people walking, bodies of water splitting or storms storms being calmed, dead people being raised to life. It's a supernatural book. Not only is there a supernatural content, but the way it came together is supernatural. We have the very words of God through the pens of men as inspired and supervised by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not co-authored between man and God. It's not dictated by God to man. It's not writings that later became seen as divine. But God's word to us is a divinely communicated and guided process through his creation of man. And so God took 40 different writers, all with different backgrounds, different upbringings, different personalities, different circumstances, different cultures, different languages. The Bible was written three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek from three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And what God did is he fashioned his perfect word over the span of over 1,500 years, covering hundreds of topics. And despite that span of time, despite the distance, the culture, the language, all the Bible writers agree and complement each other. In the Bible, you find unity with diversity. You find consistency and integrity. You find a supernatural phenomenon. You take that many writers from that different backgrounds over that length of time, from all the different you know, places they've come from, this shouldn't be in existence today. And if it is, it should be very scrutinized and very full of contradiction, and it's not. And the writers knew it was God guiding them. Oftentimes, God would say, write this down you know, to Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the apostles. Other times, writers captured events or dreams or teachings or experiences that the Lord wanted them to write down. Often we'll see the internal references where thus says the Lord, or when Jesus says, I say unto you. And so it's the will and the words of God being written. And the writers knew it. The apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he's testifying like, this isn't my work, man. God's in charge of this. The apostle Paul articulated something similar in 1 Corinthians 2. 
He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so God's message supernaturally recorded through his own creation. Now I know for me, growing up as a, as a teenager, as a new Christian, as I started getting into the Bible, I understood that it was supernatural, but then I would struggle and stumble when I would see some of the PG-13 or R-rated accounts, right? Stuff that I'm going, okay, this is from God, but this is really kind of bothering me. And so I would cringe or even doubt when I would come across some of the brutal murders or the incest or the polygamy or the deception that I would see in the Bible until I learned this, that just because it was recorded by God doesn't mean it's being endorsed by God. And God was capturing you know, a lot of humanity. And I think a lot of the reasons we see him capturing that is he's saying, look how messy you are when you don't let me run your life. <laughs> and so when we look at the Bible, we have to make a distinction between that which is prescriptive, do this, and descriptive, here's something that happened. And so as you start to understand that, you embrace more of the supernatural content, realizing it's not all endorsed, but it is all recorded. What's also supernatural about the Bible is that you will find one consistent non-contradictory theme that runs through the entire Bible. You've got God's love and plan to redeem and restore humanity back to himself through the main character, Jesus Christ. Every book either whispers, reveals, or points to Jesus. And again, looking at the background and how the book came together, that's an impossibility. It's only a supernatural phenomenon that we basically hold not uh, one book with many stories, but we hold many stories that make up one, or many books that make up one story. And it's God's story. And so it's, it's a library. This is a library telling one story. And so we hold a message that God has supernaturally preserved, put together, and protected. No other book has been so attacked throughout history as the Bible. Kings, emperors, various religious leaders, philosophers, educators have banned and burned Bibles over the centuries. They've arrested, they've executed people who had Bibles, who made Bibles. There are still places today that if you own a Bible, it's illegal. It can cost you your life. And so we know that God has protected and preserved his word. And in case you don't think God has a sense of humor, one of my favorite historical stories is the one of French philosopher Voltaire. He was an adversarial skeptic to Christianity. And he boasted, he said, within 100 years of my death, the Bible won't even be around. Well, Voltaire died in 1728, and 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his old house and used his printing press to print thousands of Bibles. And Voltaire is gone, but look what's still here, right? Why? Because it's supernatural. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's forever. It's supernatural. And so we hold history's most indestructible book, supernaturally protected and preserved by God himself. And so we can believe in the Bible because of the supernatural evidence. But why did God give us supernatural evidence? Because he wants us to know him, he wants us to trust him, and he wants us to be transformed by him. And so we believe in the Bible because of the supernatural evidence. We also believe in the Bible because of the historical evidence. We hold both history and his story in our hands. The Bible isn't myth. It's not legend, it's not fairy tale, it's not fabricated, it's actual history. Accounts of creation, 
the nations, God's special revealing of himself through the history of Jewish people. And there's the account of a real and historical Jesus Christ and his church. I found this interesting quote. Much of the Bible, in particular, the historical books of the Old Testament are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. This is from the Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Institute. They are not believers, <laughs> but they are validating the historicity of the Bible. And so the historical authenticity of Scripture will always be challenged by critics. But here's what's interesting. The degree of criticism that the Bible gets versus the degree of criticism that other historical writings get has a degree of hypocrisy because the Bible's held to a higher standard even though, ironically, it has far superior support as a historical collection of writings. The biblical documents are better preserved and more numerous than any other ancient writing and has largely remained unchanged over history. Now, obviously, we do not have the original writings because they were written on perishable materials, papyrus scrolls, leather scrolls. But uh, the early writers, Old Testament, New Testament, the scribes were fanatical about copying copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and those are called manuscripts. Now, two significant criteria are used to measure the manuscript for ancient writings. One, how many do we have? How many manuscripts do we actually have? And the other is, how close is the earliest copy to the events that are recorded? So the New Testament, for example, we have over 5,800 manuscripts, and the earliest is somewhere between 20 to 30 years from the events recorded. Some are even suggested earlier. Some perhaps... Um, even earlier than the 20 to 30 years. When you take the combination of the Old Testament scrolls, when you take the New Testament manuscripts, if you add in the earliest translations of the New Testament Bible, there are an estimated 66,362 manuscripts in the Bible's corner. The closest second, and it's a very long way away, is Homer's Iliad, that, is, that as of 2014 has around 1,800 manuscripts and the earliest dating is around 500 years between the earliest manuscript and the events. And so if one wants to discredit the historicity of the Bible, then you have to discredit other historical writings as well. If you can't trust the Bible as historical, then don't bother trusting anything else. Don't trust in Aristotle, Plato, Homer, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Caesar Augustus, and on and on and on, because the amount of manuscripts to support the Bible versus these other historical writings are not even close. Dan Wallace, who's a professor and researcher at Dallas Theological Seminary, says if the average manuscript were 2.5 inches thick from the average ancient author's work, they would maybe accumulate to about four feet high. But while the Bible's manuscripts would be over a mile high. And so if you were to put betting odds on that, where would you go, right? And so we can trust the Bible's historicity. We can confidently say that the Bible is the most historically reliable document in history. But critics will also say that the Bible's been altered and that there are contradictions. Now, I know in my experience, I don't know what you've experienced, but a lot of times when people say there's contradictions, there's been alterations, I usually respond with, can you share with me one, please, to which they can't. It's kind of a deflective shield. It's like, well, it's full of contradictions, but then they can't name it. Or if they find one, they haven't done the research to see if it's truly a contradiction or something else. Now, some scholars have done some great work. 
And what they've noticed is that there are some New Testament phrase variations. There are some stylistic changes or spelling differences among some of the copies, similar to how we would see the words honor spelled both H-O-N-O-R and H-O-N-O-U-R. And so there are some of those small changes, but the differences are completely inconsequential because they don't affect anything theological or of core belief. Even with all these variants, the copies that we have are still 99.5% textually pure. And so there still exists no internal or external evidence to falsify the Bible's claims. If I were to tell you, when you leave the parking lot today, there's a 99.5% chance you're going to get hit by a car on the way out, how many of you would still drive out of the parking lot, right? And so when we look at the Bible and say, yeah, there's some slight variations, but still the textual purity is 99.5%, that should be good enough. Now, just to show you how ridiculous the claim is that the Bible has been corrupted over time, let me play out a little scenario of how that would actually have to take place for the Bible to collaborate. It's a corruption. We would have to have a person or a group of people go out, somehow find the near 6,000 manuscripts that we have, get their hands on them, bring them back, change them somehow to match and not coincide with one another without anybody noticing that they made any changes. And then they would have to somehow get them back to where they got them without anybody catching them or telling anybody. Then on top of that, the Bible was translated into other languages so quickly. Syriac, Coptic, Armenian, Latin, okay, or Aramaic and Latin. So then those people would also have to go out and find the thousands upon thousands of translations, get their hands on all of them, pull them in, make the changes to all the translations so that they match the manuscripts now, and then um, get them back into the places where they found them without being caught and without telling anybody. And if that wasn't bad enough, the early church fathers had this amazing ability to write commentary and quote scriptures. If you were to take, if you were to burn all existing Bibles, and go and just take the quotes of Scripture and the commentaries from the early church fathers, you could reassemble a 95% of the New Testament alone. And so now these people have to go out, find all the commentaries from the early church father, find all the quotes of the early church fathers, change those without people knowing to match the translations and the manuscripts, and then somehow get them back where they found them without anybody catching them or telling anybody. Now, I don't know about you, but you want to say it takes faith for me to believe that the Bible is what it is as it is? I feel bad for the people that have to work that hard to disbelieve. We can believe what we have in our hands. Well, what about contradictions? There are definitely distinctions that you will find in Scripture. Let me just pick one. In the Gospels, there's a discrepancy, contradiction of how many angels were at the tomb of Jesus at the resurrection. If you look at the Matthew and Mark account, there is only one angel mentioned. But if you look at the Luke and John account, it says two angels are mentioned. Up, oh, contradiction, that's it. Bible's gone, out the door, right? Until you realize that if there were two, that means there was one. And so you actually don't have a contradiction, you have a distinction. Now, if Matthew and Mark said there was only one angel, now we've got a contradiction. 
But what they did is they emphasized what one angel did or what one angel said, and they didn't mention the other angels. We do it all the time. Oh, yeah, I was hanging out with so-and-so. Oh, that's it? Oh, well, no, I actually had this person, this person, this person with me. You know, we, we do the same thing. And so in the same account, there's no contradiction here. It's a distinction. And just so you know, there were two angels at the resurrection when you look at that. So as you can see, we can believe the Bible for its historical evidence. And why did God give us historical evidence? Because he wants us to know him, he wants us to trust him, and he wants us to be transformed by him. So we believe in the Bible because of the supernatural evidence, the historical evidence, and we believe in the Bible because of the archaeological evidence. The Bible's credibility is affirmed when what's been recorded in God's word is discovered when archaeologists dig around the Middle East. I encourage you to spend time reading and researching archaeological excavations and findings in the Middle East because you will quickly realize the massive support archaeology brings to the reliability of the Bible. We see the archaeology has supported biblical timelines, geographical information, historical kings, historical events and places. No Bible event has ever been disproved through archaeology. When you look at archaeology, you don't prove the Bible um, or disprove the Bible by, by what has not been found. You prove the Bible by what has been found. Let me just pick a few examples because I geek out on this stuff all the time, okay? Um, especially when you've walked among the land. Some of you got a chance to do that a couple years ago. Some of you can go with us on our next trip, fall 2019, where we can walk and see some of this stuff ourselves. But here's one example from the Old Testament. One story that's dismissed as fairy tale is the conquest of Jericho. When you open up your Bible to Joshua chapter 2 through 6, it's the account of the people of Israel that have left Egypt through the Exodus. They've come through the wilderness, and now they're crossing the Jordan, and they're coming into Canaan, and God has called them to conquer the very first city of Jericho. Now, we know the story is God tells the people to walk around the city seven days, and on the seventh day, shout, the walls fall down, they take the city. It's, it is a very unorthodox way to take a city. It is kind of unbelievable. It's like, that really? Come on, right? But let's visit a little bit the excavations of Jericho. It's Tel Es Sultan, which is 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And it's been under excavation since the early 1900s. Let's just compare a little bit about what we know about Jericho from the Bible to what's been found. First, we know that Israel had come out of Egypt to this land around 1400 BC or so. And when they've excavated, they find pottery and Egyptian amulets. I wonder how those got there, right? They uh, are dated back to this conquest era. Also, the Israelites crossed the Jordan at harvest time, Joshua 3.15, and they were told to destroy the city. God said, destroy it. Don't keep anything, just destroy it. A large amount of grain pots, just vessel after vessel after vessel, copious jars full of grain were excavated which means several things. One, the city was obviously conquered, but it wasn't a very long siege because they would have ate all their food. So because the jars were full, it was a very short siege. I don't know, seven days perhaps, okay? Also, the jars were full of grain. It was harvest time. It wasn't empty or mid because, you know, they were waiting on the harvest. They are full because they just collected the harvest and they crossed over during harvest time. And when an army conquered a city that had a bunch of food and a bunch of stuff, what would they have done? They would have ate, they would have taken it and emptied it, but these vessels were full of grain. It's not typical. Also, we know from Joshua 6.24 that the city was burned down. 
Excavations reveal layers of ash, burn, and debris. Also, carbon-14 dating of charcoal goes right back to the conquest era. One of the most fascinating parts, of course, are related to the walls. Now, we're told in Joshua 6.20 that the walls came down and that the people took the city. And it says in your Bible that the walls fell flat. When you study the Hebrew language, it means that the wall fell beneath itself. And then it says that the people went up to the city. So we have a rendering of what they believe the city of Jericho looked like based on the tell. And so you basically see a, a four-part defense system. You've got the lower retaining wall made of rock, and then you have a mud brick wall that's about 20 feet high on top of that. You're not going to get into that. Plus, there's a sloped rampart in between that and the next wall. The next wall is another wall, the city wall, inner city wall, that was another 15, 20 uh, feet high. And so this was the, the layout of the walls. And when the walls fell, they noticed that the walls fell out. So the mud brick crumbled down and crushed the walls, falling them this way. And once the brick crumbled this way, it made a ramp for the army to be able to come into the city. And so this is the whole entire walls of Jericho. And so you can see pictures of the excavation where you can see how deep the baseline of the lower wall was with the guy on the left. These are actual pictures of the... Uh, Walls at the lower level. Here's what's interesting. When you read Joshua 2.15, Rahab was a woman who hid spies in her home. And she let them escape from her window, which means she was on the lower wall with the window facing out. And she released those spies and told them to go into the Judean wilderness to hide. The deal was that she and her family would be spared. As they excavated Jericho, all the wall was crumbled except for one portion. One portion on the northern side of the city of Jericho, the wall remains, and it's what's left of a home that had a window facing out toward the Judean wilderness, possibly the home of Rahab. We don't know for sure, but just look at all the facts, and you kind of go, that's a strong possibility. And then on top of this, Joshua 6.26, Joshua said, never again will anyone ever build on the city. And if you know anything about ancient excavations, when you find a city and you dig underneath it, what do you find? Another city. And typically, if you dig again, what do you find? Another city upon city upon city. No city was ever again built on top of Jericho. It's prime real estate, but yet no one ever built on it. This is just one city one example of archaeology that gives us confidence to believe in the Bible. But I'll just give you a couple of other quick ones because I like to geek out on the stuff. Um, New Testament. For years, scholars questioned the Gospel of John because it refers to a pool by the Sheep Gate, an entrance to and out of the city, in Jerusalem called Bethesda. It also has described as having five roofed colonnades. And this is where Jesus healed a man who was blind but no such place had ever been found until the mid-1900s. Archaeologists just dug a little deeper, and guess what they found? The Pool of Bethesda by the Sheep Gate with five roofed colonnades, just as John described in his gospel. Of course, we know the most significant and well-known find that supports the Bible are the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were found accidentally by a shepherd boy in 1947. And now those 11 caves near Qumran have yielded eight to 900 documents and 50,000 or more fragments of manuscripts dating from 250, to, uh, 250 BC to 68 AD. 
And the Dead Sea Scrolls are significant because they've confirmed and verified that the Old Testament books we hold today match up with the earliest manuscripts. And so we say, like, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's been altered. Okay, so if you turn to the book of Isaiah, and then you pull up one of these manuscripts found in Qumran, in the caves, guess what? They match. And so over and over and over again, we see that archaeology reinforces the credibility and accuracy of the Bible. There was a Jewish world-renowned archaeologist born and raised here in Cincinnati. His name is Nelson Gluick. He says, no archaeological discovery has ever converted a Bible reference. So God has given us archaeological evidence. But why did he do that? Because he wants us to know him. He wants us to trust him and to be transformed by him. And so we can believe in the Bible because of the supernatural evidence, the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, and also the prophetic evidence. The Bible is full of prophecies, hundreds of accurate predictions of future events centuries beforehand. In fact, uh, it's been estimated that about 25%, a quarter of the Bible, is actually prophetic in nature. Why? Because God uses prophecy to let man know there's a God in heaven who's in charge. So God would foretell of captivities and destructions and cities and empires. And he would all, all get all the way down to prophecies about individuals as well. Let me just pick a couple of incredible examples. In Daniel 2, God allows Daniel to get a glimpse of the rise and fall of future empires. And 60 years later, the progression of those empires happened with Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greco, on and on. And the specific prophecy about Alexander the Great is extraordinary. When you look at Daniel chapter 7, you look at Daniel chapter 8, you look at Daniel chapter 11, 250 years before Alexander began his sudden and dramatic rise to power of conquest, Daniel was talking about him. In Daniel 11, verses 3 and 4, it says this, referring to Alexander, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he arise, has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken, meaning it will cease right then quickly, and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not to his offspring or to his heirs, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. It will be a deluded kingdom. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. God is showing Daniel over 250 years in advance, about a guy named Alexander the Great who would have a conquest, who would have an untimely death, and then the division of the Greek empire would be divided into four generals, not his offspring, but four generals 250 years before it happened. Now critics go like, oh yeah, well they wrote this after the fact. Not when you do your homework and look at the dating of Daniel. This is prophecy. Let me give you another one. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. It's a prophecy about the, mes the Messiah. It's messianic. So it's a reference to Jesus Christ. So this was written a thousand years. Just wrap your mind around this. A thousand years before Jesus died on the cross for the sins of mankind. And let me just pluck a few verses out of Psalm 22. The whole thing is great, but let me focus on verses 14 through 17. See if this sounds familiar because it's a vivid description of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. You've got a person who is dying in anguish. They're being poured out. It's long, excruciating death. Verse uh, 15. 
My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. So obviously this person is, is fatigued and weak. Uh, crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. Okay, it's very agonizing. Also, Jesus on the cross cried out that he was thirsty. You see here a reference to thirst. And he obviously was died and put in a tomb. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. This can be a reference to hostile people, Gentiles. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Think about the hostile crowd that followed Jesus, took Jesus, and nailed Jesus to the cross. They have pierced my hands and feet. A reference to crucifixion, right? I can count all my bones, meaning two things. One, I can count them all. None of them are broken or out of place. None of the bones of Jesus would be broken. None of them were, which, if you know, they would usually break the knees of the people dying by crucifixion. So it was rare that someone didn't. Also, uh, it can mean that he's so stretched out and pale and thin on the cross. And it says, they stare and gloat over me. You look at the death of Jesus, it was a public death. And people were mocking him. And it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And when you look at the book of Mark, guess what soldiers did for the clothing of Jesus, right? They divided his clothing, cast lots, betting on it, and getting it. This was written a thousand years before Jesus experienced this, and here's the kicker. It was written before crucifixion was even invented. David was writing about something that he never even seen. And something that Jesus could no way coordinate himself. Is prophetic in nature. And so we can trust the Bible based on prophecy. Even Jesus repeatedly prophesied. Just one of my favorites, Matthew 24, 2, as he and the disciples were walking around the luxurious, opulent uh, temple. They were, they were admiring the rocks and the stones and the grandeur. And like, Jesus, look how amazing this place is. And he says, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus speaks to the destruction of the Jewish temple, and within 40 years, in AD 70, the Jewish temple was indeed destroyed and leveled under Emperor Vespasian. And so we can add fulfillment of prophecy to the reasons that we trust the Bible. And why did God give prophetic evidence? Because he wants us to know him and to trust him and to be transformed by him. And also, lastly, we trust in the Bible because of the eyewitness evidence. The details of Scripture read like eyewitness accounts from eyewitness memories. The prophets and kings and the apostles were writing what they experienced and what they were eyewitnesses of or recorded the accounts of other eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. This is especially true in the New Testament. So, for example, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle John in 1 John 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it, and to testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. You know what they're saying? We were there. We saw it. We heard it. We touched it. These are our eyewitnesses' accounts. Also, you look at Luke. Luke was not one of the 12 disciples, 
but he was a companion to the Apostle Paul, and he wrote more in the New Testament than any other writer in the New Testament. Luke did. In Luke 1, he says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, this disciple he's writing to, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke captured eyewitness accounts so that we can have certainty of what we hold in our hands and what we read and believe. Interesting story. There was a man named Sir William Ramsey. He was an atheistic historian and archaeologist. He set out to disprove specifically the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. He said, I'm going to go you know, disprove this nonsense. But after continuously encountering the accurate eyewitness accounts of Luke, he eventually converted to Christianity. And then he wrote this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of facts trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Why? Because he was capturing eyewitness accounts. Most biblical scholars agree that the New Testament documents were all written before the close of the first century. That means the entire New Testament was completed in about 70 years which means that scriptures was circulating within the lifetime of people who could affirm or deny its accuracy. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, referring to the resurrection of Jesus, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning that there are still people alive that have seen this. They can corroborate what we're saying. They could falsify what they're saying, but it never happened. And none of this happened in secret. I love what Paul says to King Agrippa during his hearing. He's being interrogated by the king, and this is what he says in Acts 26, 26. He says, for the king knows about these things that he was talking about. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Everything that's been talked about, written about, was done in public and captured by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And so we can believe in the Bible because of the eyewitness evidence. And why did God provide eyewitness evidence? Because he wants us to know him and to trust him and to be transformed by him. So this is one way we can explain why we believe the Bible. We can believe it because of its shape. And so we believe in the Bible because of the supernatural, the historical, the archaeological, the prophetic, and the eyewitness evidence. In fact, let's just invite you to say that with me. We believe in the Bible because of the supernatural, historical, archaeological, prophetic, and eyewitness evidence. I offer that to you as a tool, hoping it can help you in conversations with people about why you believe what you believe. But make no mistake. We're not trying to find the shape of the Bible. In reality, the Bible shapes us. And that's where some of you live right now. You need the transformation of God's word in your life. Some of you right now feel far from God and you just feel like distant from the Lord. Well, reading, studying, learning, memorizing, and praying scripture will draw you closer to Christ. It will renew and restore your relationship with him. And for those of you who don't know Christ, it'll point you to him. 
Open up his word. Open up to the book of John. Just start there and start reading and meet Jesus. Some of you might be feeling frustrated or defeated in your life because you are looking for identity and value and worth in everything but where you need it, which is your relationship with God. Spending time in Scripture helps you hear God say, I know you, and I love you, and I died on the cross for you, I rose for you, I've got a plan for you, I've got a purpose for you, and so you can embrace this relationship with the Lord. Some of you are suffering in your relationships with your spouses, with your kids, with your parents, your friends, people at work. God's word can help transform you into the spouse, the parent, the child, the sibling, the boss, the worker that you need to be in the eyes of God. Some of you might be feeling defeated and hopeless right now. It's the Bible that God will use to remind you of the hope and the joy and the peace and the endurance you will need that's only found in Christ. Because God's word says that his grace is sufficient for us, right? And that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Some of you are struggling with bad decisions and bad attitudes and bad thoughts. Only God is going to bring the healing and correction and health, but he's going to do it in his word. You can't fight those things without being in God's word. And so you've got to get into God's word so God's word can get into you and then have his transforming, life-changing power released. And so the Bible is not merely a book that tells us how to live. It's literally a life-changing book. And so be a self-feeder. Read it, study it, learn it, research it, and be able to speak to why you believe in it, that it's a miraculous and invincible book, God's word given to shape us. Here's an action step, that a few action steps I want to give to you guys. First, if you don't know Christ, like you know that, and if you die today, you don't have the assurance of going to heaven. You don't know where you stand. You're on your spiritual journey right now. My encouragement is get right with the Lord through Christ. It's the way he provided. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is your way to be made right with God. It's the only way to have forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible says, and there's a lot of evidence to back it. And so we believe that. And so you can um, come to Christ today. You can say, Lord, I believe. I'm taking my first step of belief and trust and faith. I just want to grow now. And if you do that, mark that on your response card in your program. Turn that in the uh, baskets to come around in a little bit, and we'll get in touch with you and tell you how you can grow in your new relationship with Christ. If you're not ready to profess faith in Christ, just keep coming, keep listening, keep learning, start reading, and see what God reveals to you. As believers, just like I did last week, here's my challenge for you, that sometime in the next few weeks, first, sit down with another believer and just ask them, why do you believe in the Bible? And just listen to the response. Ask them if you can share and just encourage each other or challenge each other. And then also sometime in the next few weeks, man, get on the phone, get face-to-face, especially with someone who doesn't know the Lord, someone in your circle of influence and relationship sphere. And so family member, friend, coworker, neighbor, and ask them, what do you believe about the Bible? And just listen to the response. Politely interact with them. And then ask permission if you can share what you believe about the Bible. Some of you will probably say, well, I do believe in the Bible because of its supernatural, historical, archaeological, prophetic, and eyewitness evidence. And uh, then you can unpack what that means. But more importantly, why God gave it. Because he wants us to know him. He wants us to trust him and to be transformed by him. That's why he gave us his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you 
for today. God, thank you that you've given us your word. All of us have either said at some point or heard from others, if I could just touch something that God does, if I could just touch God, Lord, we hold in our hands something we can touch and we can hear, we can see. Lord, you have supernaturally preserved and given your word to us. And Lord, you speak to us through your word. You transform us. So thank you for the evidences you've given us so that we can believe. Thank you for the ability to believe, the reasoning that we can use to believe. Father, help us to grow closer to you and be transformed by you by spending time in your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have been neglecting the word, spending far more time on screens or far more time in a magazine or on the TV or just something, Lord, instead of in the Word. Help us all to be drawn back to your Word, to take it in, Father. Lord, I pray for those in this room that don't know you as Savior, that today, if they're going to profess faith, Lord, that they do so boldly and confidently as they share that with us. And Lord, if this is just one step of many steps that you have, would you just speak to them as they read your Word and and investigate, Lord, as they uh, are, are seeking and looking for you. Father, help us in our conversations. We all know people and love people that don't believe in you or your word. God, help us to encourage them, pray for them, that they would come to know the life-changing power of our Savior and the power of the word that you've given us. So, Lord, that's our heart. That's our prayer. And we offer it unified in Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen. Amen.